This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Thorne, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorne is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorne is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. 
Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Michael Easter. Now, Michael has spent his career as a journalist and is also the author of the book, The Comfort Crisis. So we discuss a host of topics from his early life, the metamorphosis of the magazine industry, the concept of misogi, seeking discomfort, goruk, and so much more. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 600 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Michael Easter. Enjoy. Well, Michael, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time. I know you just got back from overseas, so uh, for jumping on this call today and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast. Yeah, of course. I'm really happy to be here, and I appreciate you having me on. So as an icebreaker, you and I were both in Jacksonville about a month ago. So kind of talk to me. I know I know, there's a, a Go-Ruck connection. You, you read through the book as well, but you know, when did Jason reach out to you? And talk to me about that experience through your eyes. So, yeah, like, so Jacksonville happened in April, right, of 2022. I think Jason first reached out to me about the idea. And this was just like this wacky idea he'd had in the shower probably four hours beforehand. And was like, hey, we're, you know, we're thinking of doing this big fitness festival, but we also want sort of an intellectual speaker element. Uh, would you be up for running that part of it? And I was like, yeah, sure. You know, whatever. I'm like, you just have this idea. We'll see where this goes. Uh, but you know, I, I probably should never do that with Jason because he's the type of person who, once he has a big crazy idea, he actually follows through with it. And so, you know, a year later, I find myself, um, being sort of the MC of the speaker sessions at Jacksonville, which was awesome because I met a ton of really cool people. I mean, he, we brought in some really, really interesting people with interesting backgrounds, uh, I like to say that, you know, I didn't attend a fitness festival. I attended like a, a speaker <laughs> symposium because I didn't even, it was like, oh, there happens that there's this whole fitness festival going on outside. Uh, I was indoors the whole time, but it was totally cool because I got to hear a lot of interesting people. So so I was trying to, to meet you, but I had the complete opposite um, effect where I went there with my son and we never even made it to the building. And I know that you were emceeing. So I was hoping to bump into you, but I kept bumping into, you know, Jason Kalipa was just on the show, Tim Kennedy, um, you know, obviously all the, the Go Ruck people. Um, yeah. So there were so many people. I didn't even make it into the venue and I learned yeah. that it was going to be streamed online anyway. So uh, um, yeah, so I missed that, but that that's the incredible kind of immersion event that it was that you could, you know, do the, the Mannion Watt outside and then walk in and listen to some of the great speakers. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we had some good ones. I mean, kind of all over the map, there was people um, like Jason spoke, Tim Kennedy spoke, um, Ryan Mannion spoke. There was um, 
Oh man. Like Melissa urban spoke Roger Sparks. Like, and it, it was nice because people were kind of all over the map. You know, you had like Roger, me, Melissa urban, um, all in a, all in a mix. And it was just kind of this strange mix that sort of seemed to work out. So yeah, I enjoyed it. I definitely enjoyed it. That was amazing. So that was Jacksonville. Where are we finding you right now? Where's your home base? Uh, I'm based out of Las Vegas, Nevada. I've been here for about five years. Uh, my backstory is I worked in magazines on the East Coast for a long time. So men's health was my longest tenure. And they were, we had an office in New York, but most of the writing and editing happened out of a small town in Pennsylvania, which I think actually gave us an edge compared to a lot of other um, competitor magazines because our writers and editors lived lives that were far more normal compared to the dudes who were stuck in Manhattan. Um, so I was there for a bunch of years and then ended up taking a job as a professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and have been here ever since. So half my job is teaching and the other half is writing and doing all the book stuff I do. So yeah, works out well. Beautiful. We'll jump in ahead for a second on the timeline. I want to get to the, the origin story in a moment. Um, I subscribed, I didn't say subscribed, I constantly bought Men's Health. It was probably one of the main ones that I did. Um, and you know, over the time I saw... The kind of, I kind of shift from nearly all content and a few adverts to a huge amount of adverts and, and kind of diminishing content. Um, you know, and then obviously we've got this online element now. What in, in, in general in the, the paper magazine world, what has been the genesis of the time that you've been there? When I, so when I left the magazine, I was helping with the, I was, I was always mostly on the print side. Um, but I started helping run the website as well. And we would typically do like five stories a day, maybe five to 10. And all of them were good. They were really well reported. You know, if I was going to write something, I was calling like four or five sources, um, doing a lot of homework. And, you know, we wouldn't hit publish until it was pretty solid. And now the website, just because of the economics of media now, they do maybe like 30, 40, 50 stories a day. It's like, they can't be all good when you've got that, you know, it's a lot of, um, for lack of a better term, bullshit, uh, <laughs> frankly. Uh, but you know, it, it is what it is. It's tough for media now. I mean, that's kind of one of the reasons why I got out of it because things were shifting and you could start to see a tip from stories that I think meant something, especially online to those that were just kind of trying to get people to click. So they would see an advertisement. Um, I think, the print product at men's health has maybe done a little bit better job still maintaining like the high standard. So I'll still occasionally do freelance pieces for them. And I've done stories that have taken six months have been these like really deep dive investigations. Um, and at the same time though, with less advertising dollars, they're having to do a few of those. So it might be that, you know, an issue 10 years ago would have like three stories like that. These really well-reported stories. Now it might only be one or two because they're expensive. So yeah, just an interesting perspective. So thank you. So starting at the very beginning of your timeline then, tell me where you were born and then tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Yeah, I was uh, born in northern Utah. My mom was living in uh, Idaho at the time. So we moved back up there to this uh, area around a town called Sun Valley. Now, Sun Valley is like this resort town that's basically for rich people it's like you know arnold schwarzenegger has a house up there bruce willis does there's a lot of stars that would go up there always have been 
Um, we were not those people. Uh, we were the people that, you know, helped those people. My mom had um, a small women's clothing store. Now, my dad has never really been in the picture. Uh, by trade, he is a hunting and fishing guide. Um, he's a hunting and fishing guide who apparently likes to drink and have a good time. And, you know, having a toddler doesn't really jive with that. So he left our family and my mom was kind of left with me, but she is, uh, she's a pit bull. She works really hard and she ended up moving us back to Utah when I was maybe like two and just, you know, by sheer determination, she ended up creating a pretty decent life for me. I mean, it's not like we ever had you know, real money or anything. Don't get me wrong here. But the, but the reality is, is that most single parents, uh, single female parents, single moms, they live far below the poverty line. And that, that was not us. We were, you know, solidly middle-class and she was cool because we always had like the worst car in our neighborhood, but we would every summer go on like a really epic international vacation and this was like totally out of the ordinary for where we were living in Utah. And that was, you know, to teach us both um, something about the world and, you know, that there's a, there's bigger things and ideas out there. Um, so yeah, she's pretty cool. Well, firstly, I love that. I've, I've got a, a beautiful home in, in Florida and the whole kind of ethos that we have is it's affordable. And so we don't have fancy cars. I don't wear, as you can see, any fancy jewelry. The money goes into traveling and, you know, bringing my, my sons around the world and, you know, dispelling some of the myths and opening their eyes to countries that actually may do something better than America in certain areas, um, I think is so, so important. So talk to me about some of the countries you went to and, and were there any real aha moments com coming from the U.S. and seeing some of these different cultures? Yeah, like the, the very first place we went was um, Thailand. So this would have been in like 19, the early 90s, probably. And I mean, I just remember being a kid and like people were following me around because I'd never seen a, a small, you know, Caucasian child. Like there was like, like 30 people at times just like following me around, just kind of looking at me like, what the hell is this thing, you know? Um, so it was just fascinating to be exposed to that sort of thing and really realizing like, Oh, like people across a lifespan are exposed to like so many different things and ideas and like newness is unique no matter where you are, you know? And I remember like, she definitely instilled in me a uh, appreciation of going to far out places. And when I was in college, I lived in Bolivia for a while. And I had some time where I spent with a family that was kind of this, you know, traditional agriculturalist family. And having conversations with the dad, the the main guy, he you know he'd ask me questions like, "So what kind of wood do you use um, on your fire to cook your food?" And I'd be like, "Well, well, we use gas." And he's like, "Oh, where do you buy the gas?" You know, and I'm just like, "Well, I don't know. Like, it just no, it just come like it just appears. You know, like it just comes out of this pipe that's installed in the house." And he was kind of like, "What?" You know, and just having those interactions, you're like, "Holy shit!" Like maybe I'm going to start being really appreciative about that gas that just appears now. The fact that I don't have to walk out into the woods with an ax and chop it down and let it dry and then build this fire in my house that ultimately is like polluting my lungs to the max. Right. Um, so just experiences like that, I think give you some appreciation for how good we have it. But to your point, also having conversations with people where you realize, you know, there's a lot of messaging that America is the greatest country in the world. 
And I think it is for a lot of reasons, but I think we also have a lot of room for improvement. We're not the best at everything, unfortunately. Um, I told you beforehand that um, I was kind of saving some talk about my trip uh, for Iraq for the next book. But for example, I was just in Iraq like a handful of days ago. I'm driving around with this guy who's my fixer. And I was just asking him about um, terrorism in Baghdad and like, how often does it happen now? Like, how, how do you think about it? All this stuff. And, and he's like, do you have terrorism in America still? And I'm, I go to say no. And I'm like, Oh, wait a minute. Yeah. Just not the kind that you does. We don't, we don't have jihadis. We have angry young white guys who walk into schools with guns and shoot up kids. And he's like, well, that maybe seems worse than what we have, man. It's like, yeah, maybe it is, you know? So just conversations like that, it makes you think and hopefully makes you act, you know? So. Yeah, no, I think it does give you just a unique perspective. And again, like you said, it's to me that the biggest lesson would be to have the humility. And this goes to every country, have the humility to look around and say, you seem to be doing that a little bit better than we are. Can I learn how you do that? Can we can we use that here too? Well, here, here's the thing that we seem to do really well. Why don't we give that to you? And I think if all these countries, you know, just got over the egos of some of the men and women that we put as quote unquote leaders, you know, the, Finland's uh, education system, Norway's prisons, you know, the UK's health system when it's actually funded properly. These are all amazing models, in my opinion. If we shared them with each other, all of our countries would elevate. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're definitely right. And I was really, um, you know, like hospitality in the Middle East was just mind blowing. It's like you sit down somewhere and someone's like, Hey, here's a drink. You didn't even ask for it. Right. They're like, here's a water. We're bringing you food. We're, you know, and I think, um, you're starting to see, you know, the CDC recently said that the U S is facing a loneliness crisis, right? It's like, everyone kind of lives in their own little pod now staring at their screen and, I don't think you see that in as many other countries. So, no, absolutely. It was interesting reading um, the Comfort Crisis, and I just read um, Stolen Focus, jo- uh, Johan Hari's book, and those two together. I mean, such a powerful look at some of the things that we're doing that are really affecting us negatively, and they also both parallel, you know, the answer, which is, and I talk about this all the time on the show do what our great grandparents did in so many areas. We're going to fix obesity, mental health, and and so many other things. Yeah. Totally. So on that timeline, before I, I want to get to some of the you know things that you did leading into your career. But before we do, a lot of the guests that come on here are military first responders, and it's amazing how many of them actually have trauma before they reach that adult age, and in this case, put a uniform on. Your, your dad wasn't really in the picture. When you look back now with this kind of mental health lens that you have as well, are there any elements of childhood trauma you attribute to your own upbringing? Childhood? I don't know. I mean, I write in the book that um, I'm a sober person. <laughs> so I got sober seven years, uh, more than a little more over seven years ago. And, you know, I was the type of person that the first time I drank, it was like, wow, this is the solution to everything. This is great. And if one's great, man, 15 more would be even better. Right. And that's just how I always drank. It's like, I always, I said that, you know, my favorite drink was always the next one. And when you drink like that, you find that all your problems are created by your drinking. And that's sort of the definition of a drinking problem. Right. And, uh, but I couldn't stop, you know, I would, uh, you know, Sunday morning was always like, I'm never drinking again. And then come Friday, it was like, you know, 
popping tops. Like we're going to be drinking again. And despite everything I could do to, to either drink less or not drink at all. Uh, but finally I just had a moment and I'm not entirely sure why, where it just became very clear to me that my drinking habit was ultimately going to kill me early. You know, I was the type of person, it's funny. I was on this guy's uh, podcast and he's like this really, he's like this super biohacker dude. And he's like, Oh, you realize you could die because he starts naming chemicals and this happens in your liver. And eventually, and I'm like, no dude, when I would drink, like I would get behind the wheel of a car. Like I'm going to ram my car into something and kill myself and maybe someone else, you know? Um, and I could very clearly see that. And so I reached out for help. I mean, that was like the first thing I did and kind of, you know, realized that I, I think I realized that I had a problem, but I hadn't really told anyone of importance in my life about it. And that was the first step in sort of figuring out what was going on there. And once I got sober, like literally everything in my life just improved over time. I mean, it was super hard. It was kind of, it started the genesis of this idea that I talk about in my book. And that is that anything that improves your life, whether it be exercise or some diet or spending more time outside or improves your mental health, whatever it is, it's going to, it's going to be uncomfortable in the short term, but it's going to have massive benefits over the long haul for you. Yeah. Well, that's a, a very powerful theme in the book. I think, especially when you get to the nutrition chapter. And you and you know all the research that you talk about the one um, nutrition guru who talks about that you know yes you the, the junk food and that kind of thing are terrible for you but you don't demonize it you don't pull it out you include it but you educate people on how much of that you can have versus everything else but as you parallel that with your hunt in Alaska there is completely an aversion to hunger there's an aversion to too cold too hot you know too much exercise and that you know is is such a powerful perspective when you think that a lot of our young boys and girls men and women are now growing up in not only you know climate controlled like a lot of us were when we were younger but now with a device that does everything even you know in covid you want alcohol and food you just hit a couple of things on on your phone and it is is delivered straight to you so every area that we are struggling with that that aversion to discomfort seems to be at the nucleus of that particular topic. Yeah, I think so. And look, it makes sense to want to be comfortable, you know? And the reason that we always want to be comfortable is because when the world was uncomfortable, which was for most of time, like humans have been around for two and a half million years in some form or another, the world was always comfortable. We were always outside, exposed to the elements. We rarely had enough food. Um, you didn't want to burn any extra food, so it didn't make sense to move any more than you had to. So we developed all these drives to always do the next most comfortable thing. That kept us alive. Eat, eat more if you have the opportunity. Overeat, right? Don't exercise. Save those calories. Get out of the cold. Get out of the heat. Just sit around all day, right? Avoid any and all risk. But today, you know, it started changing really at the at the uh, industrial revolution. The world. I think has become pretty comfortable in a lot of ways for a lot of people. And yet we still have this drive that tells us, you know, always be comfortable. So this backfires because we now can sit around all day and survive. We have the opportunity to overeat literally three meals a day, right? We don't have to work for our food, all that kind of stuff. And, and I think this also extends. So those are obviously some physical examples, but I think this extends to mental health too, because when you look at what improves people's mental health, it's usually overcoming some sort of challenge. 
trial, like accepting a certain amount of risk and putting yourself up against it coming out the other side an improved person. Well, now it's like, you don't really like, what's the most risky thing people do every day. You know, it's like maybe driving, I don't know, but we're still wired to like avoid any and all risks. So we don't want to take risks in our career. We don't do physically risky things. And I think we never really learn what we're made of. We don't have to, we have to, we have to basically invent things in order to um, get that. Well, what was interesting reading the book as a firefighter is we do have discomfort when we go to the bad calls. So that is the gear. I mean, I, I've worked in Florida and um, California my whole career. I'm originally from England, so I'm not, you know, conditioned for the heat. I'm conditioned for gray, wet, cold, miserable days. Um, but, you know, when we have that extreme event, it's going to be horrendous. It's going to involve a high level of, of physical exertion, a high level of exposure to trauma, extreme heat. Um, and so what I've kind of viewed in the fire service, and this is, let me preface this, that the environment that a lot of these men and women work at the moment kind of sets them up for failure. They're, they're completely overworked. They're underslept. Um, so it doesn't create an environment of, of motivation and drive. But I also have seen, I've worked for, let's just say, a gamut, a spectrum of fire departments from the very best to the very worst, in my opinion. And I have seen a, a, a kind of aversion to discomfort, aversion to stress. So that's a very, very, it's, it's okay if you're a computer programmer, because as you said, what's the worst thing? You spill your latte on your pee-pee and that's, that's it. But, you know, when lives are at stake and the worst day might be climbing a 28-story building with 100 pounds on your back to go get a family out from a top-story apartment, that aversion can absolutely end in the, your own death, your partner's death, or the death of the people you're you're serving. So I think that, for me, was a very powerful perspective. And the, a discussion that we need to have in our professions is take a step back and ask yourself, am I averse to discomfort? And how do I put that back? Because I need to have that level of suck in my weekly training so that it's not new when I need it. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm realizing that when I say we, I'm meaning like the average person, I think with your um, audience, probably we is not, <laughs> is not the the people I'm referring to, but um, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, people ultimately fall back on their training and what you're doing, you know, it's like you fall back on the habits. And if you've made um, getting uncomfortable a habit in your training and also psychologically, when you get into a position where it's going to be very uncomfortable and the outcome is going to be really important. Like you said, could be your own life, someone else's life. Like you don't want that to be new. You don't want to be like, Oh, well, this is, this is new. Never been here before. Right. Of course you, you haven't been in a burning building feeling what you're feeling, but if you've at least know like, okay, this is how my body feels. I can push through that. Um, it becomes one less thing to be stressed about. You only have to focus on, the task at hand rather than, you know, the feeling in your lungs and legs and that sort of thing. Absolutely. Well, just going back to, you know, the, the comment you made about the drinking before and discomfort. And at that point, choosing to, to mask that discomfort, what age were you talking about when you first started drinking? Oh, I was in high school. So I was probably 16, 17 years old. Um, yeah. So I, I got sober when I was 28 years old. So I had a nice 12 year, run sprint if you will and what worked in the end in terms of staying sober yeah I mean, in terms of, of, of finally turning that corner finally making the choice and then to to power through that discomfort that is trying to not pick up a bottle 
Yeah, it was, I mean, it was definitely, you know, the day that I could sort of see how this was going to end, it was like clear to me that it, it would be much easier to just continue drinking. It's like, I knew what was there. Right. And in my experience up to that moment, nothing fixes a problem like the first drink for me. If I have a problem, have a drink, that'll fix it. The world comes, becomes perfect. Right. Um, so I knew it was going to be a lot harder to go down this other path that was, um, not drinking. I was going to have to like relearn everything. And it's also like the unknown. It's the great unknown. Right. Like, I didn't know what that was going to be like. And I had all these questions, like I write about in the book, it's like, I was just like, well, what do I do at my college reunion? What do I do if someone asked me if I want to drink? What do I do with X, Y, Z? You know, you're just like playing these out in your head. Um, but I think what did it for me was trying to get out of myself. I had to ask for help. I had to get out of myself and help others. Um, and I had to just realize that like on the other side of this, like, short-term hell I was going through, which was like psychological and physical, right? I used to like smoke a bunch. I used to just like go through passive cigarettes when I would <laughs> drink. So it's like your lungs are just kicking up like all this stuff and you just, uh, it's awful. Um, but then the, the longer term thing is that your brain is just like rewiring, you know, it's like, you got to really have to relearn life. And, for me, it was just, you know, I did the sort of the cliche thing you hear, which is just like, you know, just don't drink today. Just focus on today. Um, ask for a lot of help, ask questions. You know, I found some good people who had sort of been in my position as a person who was in their twenties too. I had a friend who was in his fifties, but he'd gotten sober when he was like 26 or something. And so he had a lot of good, uh, advice and he was a good person to bounce things off of. And just realizing that like, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't really know what the outcome is going to be, but I can be rather confident that I'm probably going to be in a better place than I was because the walls were kind of coming down as you know, at that final point. So as far as, you know, positive coping mechanisms, did that align with spending more time outside, you know, starting to, to seek discomfort away from alcohol? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I definitely, so I, one of the things I did is just so I would um, not be so damn self-obsessed for a minute. <laughs> um, uh, I got a dog and I would take this dog every morning to this park at like 5 a.m. and it'd be totally dark. And he's a bird dog. So he needed to just like run and sprint. It was by this river. And we'd probably spend like an hour out there every morning before I would go to work. And that was definitely, we would do it no matter what, whether it was like zero degrees out, I'd get this little coat thing on him, um, whether it was hot, whatever we would do it, you know? And I think that this was twofold. I mean, you know, you're walking, so that's good. Um, but also just spending more time outside, I think can be really calming, especially regularly. Now that's something I write about in the book is that there's all these different men uh, mental health benefits to being outdoors, being in different um, types of outdoor environments and for diff different lengths. So I read about this concept called the nature pyramid. It basically says it's kind of like the food pyramid, except with um, nature. And it basically gives you a guide um, for how you should, how much time you should spend outside and in what type of nature. And when I think about the time that I spent outside um, at this sort of state park, it definitely aligns with that. And I think it can explain a lot of the reason why I started to feel more chilled out than I would have. You know, I'm not saying that I was like a Zen monk out there because I'm like a month sober. Like I was freaking insane, 
but <laughs> I was probably less insane than I would have been. Yeah. Now going back to to your youth for a moment, um, you ended up obviously writing about you know wellness in, in men's magazine, outdoor magazines. What were you playing and doing as far as sports and exercise? Yeah, sports wise, um, I didn't play a ton of sports. I mean, I played basketball, but like I just had terrible ankles, so every you know I just kind of gave up. But I I'd always kind of been into fitness. Uh, in high school and just always worked out. And, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie. I started working out when I was 16 for girls. Like <laughs> That was it. Um, but that quickly transitioned to like, Oh, there's something here that that's compelling to me. You know, like I've always been a very high energy person, like even as a kid, um, just like running around and flailing and whatever. And, um, that sort of the working out sort of took care of a lot of that for me. Um, and so I always, uh, exercise with like, you know, lift weights and run. I grew up in, um, Utah. So there's a lot of awesome outdoor stuff there too. So a lot of sort of the granola sports like mountain biking and and rock climbing and, and that kind of stuff. Um, but I will say once I get, once I got sober, I definitely kicked that up a notch because I just like one of the ways that I would burn off this like energy was through drinking that sort of just like kind of always felt like a pressure cooker. And then when I would have a drink, it'd be like, you know, um, so I had to start exercising more in order to deal with that. And it was definitely helpful. I mean, some people might be like, well, it sounds like you just traded one addiction for another bro. <laughs> and, uh, maybe that's true, but, it, um, you know, I'm probably not going to get a, a DUI from lifting weights in my gym. So I'm cool with that. Right. Like it's a more, it's a more positive thing. And I think that if you look at, um, how much humans exercised in the grand scheme of time and space as we evolved. I think that the amount of exercise that a person that someone might be like, man, you exercise a lot. I think that's actually more in line with, um, how humans moved as we evolved for like all of time. Like if you look at the average amount of work a person does today, physical work, it's like, that is very strange in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's, that's a tricky kind of equation to navigate as well because for example the fire service you know the people that do take the job seriously they're doing all the training and they're not getting a lot of the rest and recovery that we need but then other people that you hear talking about overtraining doing so much it's like we used to you know have to walk for miles and miles and miles and, and hunt and fish and or, or even forage and then carry that back to wherever the camp was i don't think a one-hour spin session three times a week is going to burn you out yeah, I'm with you. How do you how do you as a firefighter think about that and balance that? This idea that like you might need to be ready when the siren sounds or whatever, but also needing to be like pretty fit for if something happens. That's uh I mean it's a work in progress. It really is because then as you age, I'm 48 now. I've been I've been out of the fire service three and a half years, almost four years actually. Um, but you know, you've got injuries, there's all these compounding elements, but the big thing is the sleep. Like when these men and women aren't sleeping every third day for 10, 20, 30 years, it's extremely hard to find that balance. It's very hard not to get hurt. It's basically a foregone conclusion, which is, you know, very sad. Um, but yeah, that environment is kind of set up for you to fail. If you look at the hormonal impact of sleep deprivation, you know, it, it destroys testosterone. It, it creates some, um, let me get this right. I guess 
more ghrelin look at that right the the hunger hormone um you know so that you wake up if you haven't or if you haven't slept you you're a borderline diabetic in one way or the other um so and that's for one shift and then acutely you know that your your cognition is terrible so it it really is a balancing act and it takes someone to be diligent with their education on their health and fitness it takes them to really take it seriously when they're at home um and as we see from you know some of our firefighters and law enforcement officers they're they're not able to do that you know, and then we yeah. have these these tragic videos of, for example, a police officer, you know, getting shot or killing someone because the only option was their their weapon. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think it's one of the the most misunderstood areas. Everyone thinks that firefighters walk around with abs and do calendars all day, but you know, they're actually a lot of them are dying before they each even reach retirement, and many many pass away within five years of retirement. So it's a yeah. you know, it's, it's a it's something that I hope we can change with this podcast because. We need to t- treat our police and fire the same way that we treat athletes. You know, we yeah. train them high, we set the bar high, but we give them the time to recover as well. Yeah, totally. The sleep thing is crazy. Like one of the one of the most insane stats I've ever read is that um, heart attacks peak the day after daylight savings when we all lose an hour of sleep. That hour of sleep, you see this crazy the highest day of heart attacks in uh, of the year just because of that one thing. It's yeah, crazy. That's one hour. Mm-hmm. So, so think about no hours for, you know, 20, yeah. 30 years. Yeah, it's, it's insane. Well, going back to, again, the high school age, what were you considering as far as career aspirations then? I read the book Into Thin Air when I was maybe 13 years old, and I decided that I wanted to be a adventure writer. Um, so I that worked out. <laughs> um but it's funny in college, I kind of lost that. And I, I don't know what the hell I was thinking. I was, I did a mix of majors that was uh, environmental studies and international relations. And I think I wanted to ultimately get a business law degree and be some sort of like oil, natural gas executive type. I, I, I don't know why this was, but I sort of came to my senses. Um, nothing wrong with that career. It just wouldn't have been a good fit for me. I came to my senses, maybe like my junior year after taking an English class that was about um, environmental writing and was like, oh yeah, this is what I like to do. And um, yeah, and now I'm here. So walk me through that that journey. Because when you think of people wanting to become a journalist, obviously it's it's one of those kind of career aspirations that, that falls to the wayside for most people. You know, what was that path for you like? And then kind of walk me to the point where you decided to actually, you know, write the comfort crisis itself. Yeah. So I went right after undergrad, I went into grad school because my, like I said, my undergrad, my major was just had nothing to do with writing and journalism. And not to mention, I graduated the year of the financial collapse. So there wasn't, there wasn't a job to be had. And so it was like, all right, let's just kick the can down the road and go to grad school. So I went to journalism school. Um, While I was there, I did some internships at some big men's magazines. I was always into magazines like Outside and Esquire and these like, you know, in-depth reported feature stories. And so I ended up interning there and working for a couple other magazines um, that were science-y. One was kind of science-y, Scientific American, and then one was um, sort of men's magazine, GQ. And then a job opened up at Men's Health and I was a good fit because I had the background of the dude stuff and also the science experience. And so I took that job and I just, you know, I just kind of 
poured myself into it. I mean, I will say I did uh, a lot of that job when I first started is when I was still drinking. So my performance wasn't as, as good as it could have been. Um, but especially after I got sober, it was just like, I kind of just poured myself into writing and I'd always, I think, um, known that I wanted to go into places. I mean, even early on at men's health, I kind of became the person who would find an interesting person in an interesting place doing something interesting, just like outside of the ordinary. So for example, one of my very first story assignments, I went and, um, lifted and trained with this guy who had set the world record for the first, he was the first person to ever bench press a thousand pounds. Now he trained out of this like former auto garage that was in the middle of nowhere woods, Pennsylvania. And like you go in there and there's like three pit bulls that he has that are just like running around the place. And there's just these dudes that are all like juiced out of their minds and they're huge and they're squatting like a thousand pounds and death metal is blasting and they all have mohawks and tattoos. And I'm like this 170 pound, six foot, like writer who kind of walks in like, Hey guys, you know? (laughs) And, uh, so just like putting myself in sort of strange situations, um, and relaying what I found, I think started to become sort of my stick. And I, sort of just followed that, um, to the terminal end and would always just take on assignments that got me out into the world. I think one of the big issues that I have with journalism today is that so much of reporting and writing is done from behind a screen. And like, you just, you just can't understand something to to the degree that you could, do you not, were you not to just go out in the world? Like there's, you're not going to have a story you're not going to have as good of quotes. You're not going to get like that extra bit of information you could have, like, you're not going to have a perspective on things. So it just, um, yeah, it kind of sucks. But anyways, and then I started sort of doing more and more feature stories for men's health and people like my writing and it was kind of working out. And then when I took the job at, um, teaching at UNLV, you know, it was, it was very well understood going into that, that half of my job was going to be the teaching and the other half was going to be continuing to write for magazines. So I continued that and came up with this book idea based on some of the experiences I'd had in my life, um, sort of based around one of the feature stories that I wrote for men's health. And when you do a book, you write this like long proposal, it's like 50 pages. It's kind of like a business plan for a book. And then you shop that out to publishers and one, um, took it and, yeah. And then it was like, all right, now sit down and crank out an entire book. And it involved a lot of reporting on the ground. So I spent more than a month up in the Arctic for it. Um, I traveled to like Bhutan and Iceland and obviously spent some time with Jason and the GoRuck crew and um, just people all over the map. And yeah, and it came out in uh, about a year ago now. So, Well, I wrote a book. I think it came out... Um about the same time, a year, year and a half maybe. Um, but what was interesting that I loved about yours is that when I wrote mine, the, the the kind of closing element is it was during COVID. So it gave me yet another perspective of all these things that I talked about um, in the COVID setting and how, you know, sadly, a lot of the kind of health areas that I, you know, referenced in my, my, uh, my book were kind of being discarded amongst this, you know, all these lessons that we could have pulled in. I mean, you touched about, um, you know, the the environmental element, you know, the fact that Venice canals were clearing up and you know, the ozone was reported to be closing. And then here we are two years later and absolutely nothing has has changed. So 
Talk to me about the writing process and then at what point did, did COVID begin and, and how did that factor into the writing that you did? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I write every single day, um, no matter. At le- usually an average day is like three hours. I'm usually up around like five and I'll write till eight, um, usually on book stuff. Like that's, I, I focus on the main thing I'm trying to write in that timeline and then I'll kind of sneak in some other stuff, but that gives me, that's kind of like my creative time. I don't think there's, you know, people today get really, um, I don't know. People are really interested in morning routines. I don't think there's anything unique about morning routines. I think there's just something unique about like having a routine. (laughs) Like some of one of my favorite writers would, um, he would write from like 1am to 4am you know, it's like, I could never do that, but like it worked for him. It's just more the point that like, you have to do something every day. Um, so that's helped me in terms of how that book unfolded. We had it, we had like an entire first draft pretty much in when, uh, COVID hit and we were kind of doing the final page proofs and stuff like that. And it was like, we definitely have to like, address this in here. Cause this is clearly going to be a thing. I think it, the fi- the very final proofs were maybe the end of May. So we had like two or three months to like reread it and be like, how does this, how is this going to change all these things that um, we're talking about in the book and how can we flow them in, in a way that isn't going to give the copy editor <laughs> a complete heart attack. They're going to have to like reread and redo every sentence of this book um, maybe could have included more stuff at the same time. That was just such a strange time in COVID when we, you didn't really know what was going to happen. I mean, people were like thinking, oh yeah, like this will totally be done in like September and we'll just be back to normal life. And then, you know, here we are now it's more than two years later. And like, there's, there's still stuff that's still constraining our lives in a lot of ways. So, um, it was definitely an interesting process. And what was funny is that, uh, my wife and I had in December, we had signed to buy a new house and it was a new build. Um, a lot of Las Vegas is like these, you know, communities of um, new builds or whatever. So we signed in December and sold our house in, sold our current house in January and moved into an apartment. We're like, we're only going to be here for a handful of months. We get this like small one bedroom apartment. We have like these two big dogs and we literally bring like a table, chairs, a mattress and a TV, a few changes of clothes. Like that's it. Cause we're like, just put everything in a storage unit. We'll have it all moved there. Just bare minimum for a couple months. And then of course COVID hits when we're like in this tiny apartment. And it was just like, especially at first I'm like, Oh my God, if I end up dying in this apartment, that's going to be the worst, you know? <laughs> uh, but we survived and it was actually kind of nice because like, there was just like, you were very focused. Like for me, especially that being the end of the book, it was like, I didn't have any distractions. It was just like, I'd go sit on that, you know, in the single table we had and work on the book. And my wife would be like in the closet on zoom calls. She's a, uh, she does legal stuff. She's a lawyer and, um, she doesn't work for a firm, but she does a lot of, um, legal compliance work for one of the health-based boards in the state. So she's literally having to come up with like, like health compliance laws for the state out of the closet. And it was just like a very strange time. So. Yeah. It was just such a unusual time, like I said, and to, to pull that, but I think as well, it really kind of, 
pull the curtain back, I think, on a lot of the the issues, whether it was the the obesity element, whether it was the distraction element, you know, and and the comfort, you know, element that you talk about. When you start kind of diving into that comfort element, were there some, again, some some moments, whether it was as a professor and your students or or any kind of aha moments prior to prior to writing that, where you had this this realization that was so powerful that you felt compelled to do, you know, an entire book about it because, you know, we all know, oh yeah, social media steals your focus, for example. But when you look at the mental health element, the, you know, the community issues that we have, the obesity element, there were so many things tied in. Um, and, you know, it, it's written so well, but was, it, it almost seems like there was a kind of, I've had enough. Fuck it. I'm going to write a book element to this, you know, that, that was the, the, the genesis of it. Yeah. Well, I think the getting sober part told me that in order to improve your life, you have to go through discomfort. Then I did a story for men's health magazine where I went um, hunting with a guy whose name is Donnie Vincent. He's this backcountry bow hunter and filmmaker. He goes into these like crazy extreme remote places for months at a time. And I only spent like five days with him, but we were on this elk hunt in Nevada up in sort of the high country, like 10,000 feet, just totally off the grid for a handful of days hunting. And in that experience, it exposed me to a lot of discomforts that we just don't face often in our lives every, every day anymore. Right. So constant exposure to different temperatures, right? Most people live at 72 degrees. We're hungry the whole time because we had to pack in all our food and you're not packing in much because you don't want to carry that stuff around all the time. So, you know, all of a sudden I'm hungry, not just for like a couple minutes and not just mindless hunger, but like hungry for like three, four days straight without enough food. Um, even just sitting, like you're sitting on the ground. It's not comfortable, right? You're shifting around all the time. You're having to use your pack muscles to keep your torso up. Um, having to like, if we want water, we've got to hike down to a stream to get it. Um, the boredom stuff is like, I think people who've never hunted, they think that it's maybe this action packed thing. No, it's so boring, dude. It, it's so boring at times because you're just kind of waiting for these animals, like with elk hunting, we're glassing on this ridge, kind of waiting for these animals to wake up from their afternoon nap and come out in a clearing and, you know, start eating some grass. And then like the next day we're going to try and be in the right place. So you're just sitting and waiting and watching, you know, and cell phone didn't work, didn't bring magazines and stuff. So all of a sudden it's like, oh, I'm bored again. And like, I don't have a cell phone to just immediately fix this discomfort of boredom I have. All right. So that sort of set the genesis for this idea of to improve your life, you need to go through discomfort. Yet at the same time, we have engineered discomfort out of our lives in like every imaginable way. I mean, think of the things that most impact your daily life right now. All of them are less than a hundred years old. All of them make your life easier, more comfortable. Right. And that has surely changed us as a species. So when we think about I mean, going back to the boredom and distraction thing, the average person now spends more than 12 hours a day engaged with digital media. For two and a half million years, we had none of that in our lives. None of it. Our attention was not focused on that. Now it's literally become our lives. Like that has undoubtedly changed us in ways that I think we're aware of. We know that it is linked to anxiety, um, depression, all these things. 
um, but also ways that I think we're going to learn more later. And sort of at the end of the day, it's like one of my favorite quotes is from uh, the psychologist, William James. And he basically said, at the end of your life, um, your life is essentially a collection of what you were aware of. So now the average person is aware of 12 hours of, <laughs> of media, which I'm not saying that all stuff is bad, right? It's like you and I connected over Instagram. Awesome. I've met other people over Instagram that are awesome. Uh, I watched an interesting documentary last night on HBO. At the same time, that's maybe like three hours of the time I spend there, right? It's like, <laughs> I think the vast majority of it, um, frankly, is like, it's not moving my life forward in any way. Like, it's just so easy to slip into um, looking at a screen because they are engineered to be really, really compelling. And we have this evolutionary hardware that basically tells us if you're bored, something's going wrong. You got you to gotta look elsewhere. So in the book, I talk about um, why do humans get bored in the first place? Well, boredom is this evolutionary discomfort that basically told us whatever you are doing with your time, the return on your time invested has worn thin. So if we are on a hill and we're sitting and we're hunting and back then we know we need dinner for the night, right? Or we're going to starve. Well, if no animals are coming through, boredom is going to kick in and it's going to be this discomfort that tells us, you know, go do something else. And that something else might be, I don't know, you go pick berries or you pick some potatoes or you, you do something else to get you food, right? But now when we feel that evolutionary discomfort of boredom, we just have like the easiest, most effortless ways to stop it, you know? So I don't know. It is, it's definitely strange times right now. And I think everyone struggles with that. And I'm, you know, I'm, I kind of like to say in the book that I don't, you see a lot of stuff around, you know, use your phone less, use your phone less. But I really think about it as try to find moments to be bored more because most people, when they take an hour off their phone screen time, they're like, oh my God, I'm so bored. What should I do? I'll watch Netflix. Your brain doesn't know the difference. It doesn't at all. It's the same damn thing. So boredom is better. So I had a kind of interesting experience and it was not, you know, hunting caribou in the in Alaska. However, it was on a cruise. And when you think of a cruise in casinos and unlimited food and lots of people crammed together, but this particular week, it was just my wife and I, and we always get a, a balcony room. So, you, so your view is the ocean, the Caribbean. And as long as you've got neighbors that aren't a-holes, it's pretty, you know, pretty tranquil in there. But I just put my phone away for a full week. I preloaded the, uh, the episodes to go out. Um, you know, I said, I'll, I'll promote them when I get back. And I brought the um, Stolen Focus with me, Johan's book. And the first couple of days, it's kind of parallel what you were talking about when you first got there. I found it really hard to read and I kind of wanted to just do something else. It was, I had full on squirrel brain. And by about day three, I could fully focus and read. I think I'm going to read, you know, 50, 60 pages at a time out on that balcony and didn't think about the phone at all. Now, my social media is groomed to be very positive, very, you know, uplifting. But I'm sure you had the same thing. When you are reaching out to people for interviews and all these things, did they respond? Oh, how many people have downloaded the podcast? You know, so it's not even so much like, oh, I'm going to scroll through social media. It's all the other pings and dings as well, because you're trying to move the needle on, you know, the whole point of this is trying to, to, to help people get better and get out of pain, all those things. So there's, a, there's an altruistic drive, but that data, that crave for feedback was insane. And then kind of deep into this week, 
I had a realization if my mind, which isn't really, you know, triggered and full of clickbait normally, is this full, then think about the lack of space, not only for creativity, but also for prayer. All these people that do have a God that they talk to, they don't have the capacity to have that conversation. They don't have the capacity, as you've talked about, to, to look at one of the most amazing things around us, a tree, a, you know, an animal, whatever it is, to engage someone and look them in the eye in, in, in you know, deep-rooted human communication. So that was just glaring to me that, yes, I have a positive, you know, social media and I don't scan, you know, walls and feeds for a long time, but all the other things that my phone does really was the, was the crack cocaine for, for, you know, me with that phone. And it, but the, the uplifting element was it only took a couple of days locking that damn thing away to then return to, to being present again. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that was my experience um, when I was in the Arctic too, is at first it's just, it's uncomfortable because you don't know like what the hell to do with your mind and you're wondering, you know, what's going on at home. You're wishing you could check your email, all that kind of stuff. It was, um, but then after a while, you kind of like, you kind of start to settle in, you know? And I think that these periods of removal and not to mention, once you settle in, like you become a lot calmer, it feels like the pace of life sort of slows down. And I think one of the benefits that I experienced at least is that when I came back from that, it's not like I jumped back in to my phone, like insane, just scrolling, you know, craziness. It was like, oh, I actually like how I feel right now a lot better than, you know, when I'm in frantic mode on my phone. And so maybe I need to like rethink how I use this thing, you know? And so you kind of like, it, it sort of lasts a while. Now I think eventually people start to go back to like normalcy. But I think this is really the case for some of the ideas I talk about in the book is like, we need these periods where we just kind of remove ourselves and get out into nature and get away from tech and do hard things. And, you know, and this applies to a lot of things. It's not just your phone. It's things like, it's things like food. It's things like time with sort of hard stints of exercise. It's taking on like sort of big epic challenges, even if it's like once a year twice a year. I think that that sort of, um, you know, they say that like consistency is key and I think it is, but I think you also need times where you freaking empty the tank, dude, you know, in a lot of different ways. I think that can be really good for people. So people that have come on here that, um, have either created or participated some of these amazing camps for veterans, first responders, the other people that are struggling mentally, a key component that seems to be very successful is time in nature, whether it's rocks, whether it's, you know, some sort of, you know, uh, I don't know how to describe it, but these camps that have, um, you know, adventure elements to them where you're facing your fears, they all seem to do well in community, all seem to do well with the mental health element. Now, you write about the concept, the Japanese word of misogi. Um, that seems to have so much application not only to overall wellness, especially to a lot of people in the professions that I'm kind of aligned with that are trying to overcome, you know, whether it's childhood trauma, whether it's what we've seen and done at work, a combination of everything. So talk to me about that discovery and, and what you witnessed, not only yourself, but through the research of the power of, of seeking discomfort on some of these adventures that you put yourself through. Yeah. So the, the idea of Masogi, and I learned this from a guy whose name is Marcus Elliott and, um, two things you know need to know about Marcus is that he's a seeker in the sense that like he's out there, you know, goes to Burning Man, 
um, lived out of a VW van for a while. Um, but he's also super smart guy. So he graduated from Harvard medical school and he decided that he didn't want to be a doctor. He was going to revolutionize sports science. And he ended up actually doing this, right? This is like this pronouncement. That's like so grand that you're just kind of like, yeah, screw you, dude. Like, give me a break. Um, but he actually does it. He has this uh, company called P3 and they have contracts with the NBA and NFL. And he's the first person to really bring um, movement monitoring, big data, AI and algorithms into um, human movement. So he can look at, um, he has these like systems and computers that he'll have a player move. And with this, he'll be able to be like, oh, you, you're really good at this one thing. Let's develop that. Um, so something that he did is he worked with uh, Luka Doncic, the basketball player. He realized like, oh, you're really good at slowing down. So they developed Luka's game around this sort of stop and pop. And now he's Luka Doncic, right? Um, but also it helps with like injury prevention. He can be like the way your knee moves. You have X amount of risk. So anyways, I told you that to tell you he's all into like the numbers and the data and stuff. But he also realizes that what, what really improves a lot of the players that he works with is this more internal stuff, right? It's not always these measurable things that you can put a number on. There's like a certain gear that people just have that comes out when they need it most, right? It's just like this innate potential. And so to get to that, he does this Masogi thing. And the concept is that the short of it is that basically once a year, I'm going to go out into nature and I'm going to do something really, really hard. So there's two rules. One, make it really hard. Two, don't die. <laughs> now, one, he defines by saying you should have a true 50-50 shot of finishing whatever your, your Masogi task is. So true 50-50 shot, because when you think about how a lot of people approach challenge now, it's all stuff we know we're going to finish, right? When people do marathons, and I talked about Masogi at uh, the Jacksonville event, but when you think about how people approach marathons, it's not... I don't know if I can finish it. It's, I don't know if I can finish it in three hours, 30 minutes or three hours, 15 minutes, whatever the goal is. Right. Uh, and then number two is just basically a way of saying, don't be an idiot. Like make sure you're safe when doing this thing. Uh, and the idea behind it is that, you know, if you goes back to evolution, you think about how humans evolved, we used to have to do hard things like all the time, super challenging stuff could be from hunting, could be from like moving from summering to wintering grounds, all that kind of thing. And every time we would take on one of these big epic challenges, it would teach us something about ourselves, right? You would learn what you were capable of. You would get thrust into this like really trying middle ground. You would kind of struggle. You'd have these moments where you thought you were going to have to quit, but you would make it out the other side. And by doing that, it was just like, oh, I'm capable of a lot more. I just got shown that, right? But we don't really have that in our modern lives anymore right? We don't have the same challenges that just get thrust onto us. So we don't necessarily have times where we can really find out what we're capable of. Now, the people who listen to your podcast might not always be the case for them, but I think for the average person, that is the case. And so the idea of Masogi of going out and doing something where there's that 50-50 shot, you're definitely going to hit a moment where you're like, I don't know if I can finish this thing. But if you can keep putting one foot in front of the other, you can realize like, oh, I thought I was going to have to quit back there. I thought I was done but now I'm here. So like I'm selling myself short there. And the more important takeaway is like, okay, if I'm sold myself short here, where else am I selling myself short in my life? Right. And I think it also does some stuff with reframing fear for people where they realize like, you now you kind of, you're afraid to get into this, but you dance on the edge of fear and you realize that like 
most things aren't really that big of a deal and you can do a lot more than you're capable of, you know? So that's kind of how he gets to that. So for me, like my, I would say my time in the Arctic was definitely my <laughs> misogi of that year. And I try and do one every year, every year since then. And I found it to be like a really, I don't know, it's just a powerful practice. And I think it works for a lot of people. And this, this Marcus dude has done them with, he's done them for a long time, but he's done them with people from, you know, artists to accountants to literally Super Bowl MVP type folks. So yeah, it's a, it's definitely an interesting practice that I recommend people do. And the, the beautiful thing is the 50, 50 means that anyone can do it. Right. I had a woman who was 72 years old, who sent me an email and said, uh, I think her name was Deb. Yeah. She goes, hi, Michael. My name's Deb. I'm 72 years old. I'm about to do Masogi. I'll make it hard. I won't die. Thank you, Deb. You know, <laughs> so it's like right on. <laughs> I've got a friend who um, is in the diesel industry and his, his, I think it's a family owned business. So he's not out there. I don't think, you know, covered in grease anymore. I think he's managing it. But a phenomenal human being. He's done, I think, every GORUCK event that, that's out there, you know, from the, the, the easiest to the hardest. He's done Kokoro Camp. He's done all these things. And, and he, to me, epitomizes what you talk about. There's some he's completed and there's some he's failed. And, and he's just constantly seeking that. And I think you touched on this earlier. There's a, a John Steinbeck, um, book and I forget, I always forget which one it is, but he talks about memories are, you know, the signposts of time or something like that. So when we do these crucible, when we do these hard things, whether it's a, a you know, a, a, a scary call for us as a firefighter, whether it's a you know, competition or a hunt or, you know, a swim or whatever it is, not only is that taken out of our com- us out of our comfort zone, but I agree with you completely. It's so easy just to get so stuck in that routine that, that life goes flying by. And the more, unique different things you can do and some in some of those discomfort as well i think it it kind of throws the anchor down on life and when you look back and this is something i do a lot you go well yeah it seems like this year has gone by but we've done this 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 and this and so you you kind of i think from a mental health element you're like because i mean for me mortality you know my immortality excuse me the 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 fear of death is definitely a thing like i don't know what's going to happen and personally it scares me but the more things in a in a, a moderate way that you can fill in your life, I think the less terrifying it is being at your deathbed and having regrets. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, you know, as part of this book, like I talked to researchers at Cambridge and they talked about how when you do the same thing over and over in a routine, your brain can kind of go on autopilot because you can predict the future. You don't really need to know what's out there. So you don't need to be present and focused. You can just kind of go through the motions. So you kind of get on this sleepwalking mode. And this actually makes your life go, go by faster because you're just kind of like zooming through it. Your head's somewhere up in the clouds. Um, but when you do new things, all of a sudden you can't predict the future, right? You're like kind of like, oh, what's next? Um, so this can actually, I mean, it forces you to be present and engaged. Think about when you do, um, a new activity, like let's say you're first learning to swim, you're first learning to swing a golf club. All you can think about is learning to swim or swing a golf club, right? That is like on your mind. And this actually ends up slowing down your perception of time. So this is why um, when you're a kid, time probably seemed a lot slower because so much of the world was uh, new then, for one of the reasons. Yeah, I think that's why it's important 
as you said before, you know, there's there's so much fear of the unknown, you know, paralysis by analysis, but being brave as you get older in life, you know, and when something presents you, oh, I think that's going to be too much. I won't have time. I won't have the money. Just like with the international traveling you did when you were young, say yes more. The more yeah. things you can say yes to, again, within reason, where it doesn't take you away from your family too much, the more adventures you'll find yourself. And I found that with me. I mean, I left the fire service in a huge leap of faith. And here we are now having a conversation. And, you know, it just, it, it blows my mind where it took me. And that was simply from saying, I'm going to do something that terrifies me. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And I mean, I think the reality is, is like, we're wired to avoid risk to not want to do these things because in the past it often meant death, right? If you're like, Hey, I'm leaving the tribe. I'm going to go find another tribe to hang out with. Screw you guys. Like we can go out into the wild and like, hopefully you stumble upon someone, right? Like that's actually dangerous. But today it's like, if, if you lost every single thing, it would suck. I'm not saying it wouldn't suck, but would you die? Probably not. Okay. Well then what would happen? Do you feel like you're halfway intelligent? Do you think you could start to rebuild? Do you think there would be resources that you could draw on in order to rebuild? Probably, right? So I think that like, even at the most extreme end, like it's, it's never going to be as bad as, as we think it is. And the stuff that we um, don't do out of fear is often stuff that has like very, very minimal risk, right? Like, I'm sure for you, when you jumped out of the fire service, like that was terrifying as it should be. At the same time, if like the shit hit the fan, like, do you think they would have never taken you back or you couldn't have found another job as a firefighter, like anywhere ever, you know, like you probably could have done that, but it's terrifying. And like, I think everyone feels that I feel the same way. It's like when I left men's health, I was just kind of like, am I like making the stupidest decision of, of all time, you know? But the reality is, is like, even if UNLV, like I got there and they're like, look at this guy, you're not a professor. Like I probably could have just gone and written for another magazine. Right. Um, so I think that sort of the message is that we're always going to over be overly fearful of like big changes and overestimate the consequences when reality it's the benefits that are going to be way, way, way bigger than the consequences. It's like that Joseph Campbell quote. It's the, the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of, of, you know, again, fear and discomfort, I wouldn't mind just kind of returning to the nutritional element. You quote a statistic in the book that I talk about all the time. And I don't think people, I don't think it sticks that 70% of this country are obese or overweight. So I was telling my son today, so if you meet three people, two of those people are going to be overweight or obese in any, you know, any portion of America. So if you wouldn't mind kind of that, that chapter on nutrition, especially that, that one gentleman that you got to, to, you know, be your nutritionist for a while, what are the mistakes that we're seeing? What are, you know, not only the, the physical um, ingestion of calories, but the mental health behind it that you think that we're, we're combating at the moment with this horrendous health epidemic that we've got? Yeah. So for that section, I spent some time with a guy who's become a really good friend. His name's Trevor Cashy, and he's, uh, he's super brilliant. He got, I think he graduated college when he was 18, got his PhD when he was like 22 um, in biochem and pivoted away from doing research in the lab. He was doing cancer research because um, he was really into fitness and helping people improve and 
So now long story short is he owns a nutrition company, but he's very much um, trained as a chemist and scientist first, or I think a lot of people in the nutrition community are trained as nutritionists first. And that's a different, that's a different sort of way of thinking. So he really thinks about it from chemical processes and from working with like thousands of people. He's basically come to the conclusion that, but I don't care what you eat. I care why you eat. <laughs> Because what usually holds people back is that they eat for reasons other than hunger. So when you look at the data, something like 80% of our eating is driven by reasons other than real hunger. It's because we're stressed out. It's because it's a certain time on a clock. It's for all these different reasons. So this is not to say that, and he would never say that what you put in your mouth isn't important. It is, but what tends to make or break it is um, the why. And he's found that like, if you want to lose weight, you're probably going to be hungry at some point. And so learning to deal with that, I think is an important part of being able to change. And if you look at every, you know, diet culture, as we have it, it always, um, most popular diets are going to basically say that one type of food is the savior and another is the villain, right? So I don't know, carnivore diet, vegetables are the devil, eat meat, uh, paleo diet, foods that a caveman wouldn't eat are the, are, you know, what you need to eat or whatever, you know, like and on and on low fat, low carb, whatever one food is good. Another is bad. Um, but all of them work, right? If you follow them. So then the question is, why aren't you following them? Because after five weeks, most people um, start to get pretty hungry. And that's because, you know, your body, we evolved to when the body starts to lose weight, it, um, we don't like it, right? Because that would have been a bad thing in our past where there wasn't enough food. Like that could signal that you were going to starve soon. So your body has all these sort of internal mechanisms to um, unconsciously kick up the amount of food that you eat decrease your movement. It'll sometimes even lower your body temperature. So you're burning less at rest. Um, basically all these things to get you to eat more food. And, um, so that comes into the, why are you eating? Right. So a lot of what he does is he has people just become aware of the amount of food they eat. Cause no one really knows. I mean, you can, you ask people and they're always off by like 500 to a thousand calories when they do estimates. So, it's, I'm not saying it's not a very um, tricky problem and that it's not hard to lose weight. It definitely is hard, but it is simple, right? It's just like eat less than you burn. <laughs> now, how you get there is where it, where it gets tricky. Well, it, it kind of reminds me of a topic that someone said on the show a while ago now, and it's such a great quote um, or such a great philosophy, but choose your heart. And I think... A lot of people say, for example, the morbidly obese, they're in a constant, you know, discomfort state. So understanding that you're already suffering and that you can apply discomfort to the discipline with your food or maybe addressing some of the reasons why you eat, you know, for depression, for, you know, I mean, there's some stories of even people don't want to be slim because they were sexually abused when they were young. They don't want to mm -hmm. be attractive, you know, so these these real kind of underlying nuclei to, to their food habits. But just reframing, like you are already suffering. You're already doing the work. So let's shift the work to something that's actually going to pay dividends for you. Yeah. I mean, I think that just the the way that um the way that we've set up dieting over the last like 40 years, I think, has kind of set people up to fail. And we need to start thinking of it more from 
a psychological perspective more than just, you know, these foods are good and these foods are bad. Um, again, not saying it's, um, it's easy, but you know, it can be at the end of the day, it is, it does tend to be simple for most people, unless you have like a very rare genetic thing. And I think that that those tend to be much more rare than I think are advertised than we see people claiming. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think there's a, a quite, quite the inflation of uh, thyroid issues amongst people yeah. naturally. <laughs> um, so then we talked about the Misogi, you know, obviously this is, this is a one-time event, you know, once a year, twice a year, whatever it ends up being. Another interesting thing I pulled from the book, which I agree with, um, is, you know, there's been a, a big kind of push towards, for example, ice baths and they absolutely have a place. But you know, the logistics of that for the average person, let's say they're living in that apartment with, with, you know, with one table and a mattress, you're probably not going to have a deep freezer full of ice water that you can just plunge in and out of. Um, ironically, where you live, where I live is really fucking hot outside, which is also an element of discomfort. I walk my dogs twice a day. I try and do as many of my workouts outside as I can. It was 102 today with God knows what the humidity was, like swimming pool or something. <laughs> um, and so to me, that's again, another way of, of seeking that discomfort, but it's not obviously the, the, the low end, it's the high end. But you talk about that. How how can we add discomfort into our daily lives so that those incremental steps can start making us more resilient? Yeah, when we talk about temperature, I mean, I think that there's definitely benefits to exposing your body to different temperatures. I think one thing that's happened is that we now have sort of taken it to this extreme, like to your point, like with sort of ice baths, or maybe it's like a sauna that's a bajillion degrees. I mean, I think you can get a ton of benefit just from doing more stuff outside. It's like when it's cold outside in the winter, <laughs> do stuff then, you know? Um, I mean, we know that there's benefits to being in the cold. I don't know that there's a ton of evidence suggesting that like an ice bath is going to be a thing that really does it. I think it can be, um, like just normally cold, like spending time, like not using your, uh, heater when it's cold out, you know, keeping your house at like 60, 60 degrees or whatever. Um, but I think that that is important. I think the, I think the benefit of something like an ice bath is not so much physical for people as it is mental and that it kind of gives them a win every single day. You know, if you do it like once a week, it's kind of like this thing that like shocks people into like, Oh, and like just shocks their system into this totally new, um, area. And after that, there's kind of like a euphoria that can come from that. Yeah. And it seems like the contrast therapy, the hot, cold, definitely, you know, I mean, there's a lot of science behind that that makes sense. You know, the heat shock proteins and, mm -hmm. um, you know, the reset and the uh, sympathetic nervous system. I mean, they all make sense to me, but it's the availability of that for a lot of us, you know, the same yeah. way as, you know, hunting. I mean, I think, um, I think it was James, uh, God, I want to blank on his last name, but he made the, the Game Changers movie and he talked about hunting being elitist and, you know, Joe Rogan talking about it, who I think is amazing, but he's got a point. Not everyone can then just, you know, just go on a hunt. I mean, a lot of people just don't have that ability. Um, so what can we bring to them as well? So I think that's a very important point that you can find areas of, of low or high heat or, you know, physical exertion, or like you said, even prolong the, the periods between meals where you can just start adding a little discomfort, a little boredom, and therefore start pushing the walls from this extreme comfort that we found ourselves in 2022. Yeah, hundred percent. And I totally agree on the hunting thing. I mean, it's like, 
it's an expensive sport. It's very hard to get into. There's so many barriers to entry um, that, yeah, I, I think that there's something definitely beneficial to it, but what is beneficial to it is are things that you can all get in different ways beyond hunting, right? Like totally full stop, the physical exertion, the carrying stuff, the boredom, the exposure to the life cycle, all those different things. I think what really makes hunting unique is that exposure to the life cycle. At the same time, I think that can be had in um, different ways. And I don't think as much as um, hunters like to say that like there's um, nutritional benefits above and beyond uh, other, you know, commercially available meats to like this hunted game meat. I don't, I don't think that's actually true. Um, it's kind of like how people say that <laughs> the eggs that their chickens laid taste better than the ones at the grocery store. When you blindfold test people, they can't tell the damn difference. You know, it's just, um, <laughs> so I don't, I don't think we want people to like, think that there's something magical about an activity that like literally 99% of the population doesn't do. Some of those can't do, and a lot of those don't want to do, you know? Yeah. Well, I think the, the middle ground, again, is, you know, we have these factory farms and people are so disconnected from all of their food. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you can hunt, absolutely hunt. And if people can kind of buy in on what you catch, then beautiful. Um, but also, if there are local farms that can do more like a kind of Joel Salatin model where they're rotating the livestock through and that the soil is constantly regenerating, and we fund that locally. So when we have an epidemic or a pandemic, we're not, you know, at the mercy of three slaughterhouses in the whole of the US, you know, binding yeah. everything up. I think that's that would be a great takeaway. If you want to hunt and you have the ability to, you know, more power to you. That's amazing. Yeah. But if you don't, then we support local people who are experts at raising our food and we buy from them directly and we learn how they grow it and how they kill it and we have a connection to them and maybe we have our own chickens because that's easier to have on a small property of land and grow yep. your own herbs and that way you know you kind of bridge that gap without being either extreme living you know on you know uh, what they call them hot pockets your whole life or living in the wilderness with a giant beard hunting elk yeah totally i'm with you man it's all like kind of finding the middle ground that is sustainable for you. And yeah, that's definitely not to say like, if you're interested in hunting, I mean, try, I mean, by all means get into it, you know, but don't feel like you're missing out on a lot of the stuff we've been talking about because you don't do hunting or any other thing that, you know, people get really into and post about on social. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. All right. Well, I want to move some closing questions so I can be mindful of your time. Well, it's before we do that. So The Comfort Crisis is your most recent book. So tell people where they can find that. And if you if you want to kind of sow some seeds about the next book and what it might be about. Oh, yeah. So The Comfort Crisis is available um, pretty much everywhere, but Amazon is easiest. Uh, a lot of people just get it on Audible and listen to it when they work out or whatever. So I read it. So if you found my voice annoying in this podcast, I recommend that you uh, buy the hardcover. <laughs> Um, the next book is the working title is called the scarcity brain. And it's about how humans evolved in, um, scarcity of all different things from food to stuff, to information, to the number of people we could influence to the amount of time we had on earth and all of those things we have in abundance now. So our food environment, uh, the amount of stuff we can buy, the amount of people we can influence all these different things. And it looks at, um, what that's doing to us and how to find balance in this world of abundance. Now, what was the name of the number that globally it seemed was the, the kind of average of, of the number of people in the tribe? 150. That was kind of the max, yeah. 
Um, yeah, Dunbar's number. Dunbar, that's right. Yeah. So what was interesting to me, just as a, as a side note, because you, you mentioned that for a second, I've worked for multiple departments. One only had four stations. One had 51, no, 41 stations. And the one that I thought was, was, you know, was, was my favorite. The one that I really, really kind of, you know, put on a pedestal, <clears throat> excuse me, was about 450, but that's three shifts. So it kind of stuck me like, okay, so one of those shifts is about 150 people. It was small enough where we all knew each other, but big enough where we weren't, you know, in each other's business the whole time. So yeah, when you, when you take a step back and you look at, you know, like right now, I've got almost 20,000, and I hate this word, followers, you know, of, of which 99% I will never meet face to face, you know, so that's not a real number. Um, but, you know, you look again at, at the number of people that are, deathly lonely in the middle of a you know an urban city so i think that's a number that we really have to pull out the shadows and and look at and how can we find that 150 people in the subculture in our town city whatever and kind of revisit that sense of community yeah yeah i'm with you i mean i think it's i think it's powerful i think it's easy to get to feel like you're just kind of a number in a lot of the ways that we've set up our you know communities today and they're not necessarily advantageous for mental health, but I, I mean, I hope some people are starting to think about that and it's coming to more people's attention. So. Absolutely. All right. Well then the first of the closing questions, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend that can be related to today's discussion or completely unrelated? Well, I mentioned Into Thin Air. I mean, that's the book that got me into adventure journalism. That's a great book. It's by the same guy who did Into the Wild. A lot of people have read that. Um, I was a big, I think a lot of people have read this, but I was a big fan of Sapiens, how he just kind of pulled together all of human history in like 400 pages and how it makes sense. Um, I'm also a big fan, probably books that fewer people have read. I'm a big fan of the work of uh, Joseph Campbell. And I just, I think his stuff is awesome. Um, probably the easiest way to get into him is uh, the power of myth. And it's really awesome in audio because it's him um, him being interviewed by Bill Moyers. So that's a good one. Um, those are the ones that come to my mind right off the bat. And I, uh, I recently listened to Warriors Creed, which I assume probably a lot of your listeners have, cause they were in the, it was in the go ruck book of the month club or whatever. And, uh, that one's awesome. So. Brilliant. Well, thank you. What about, um, and I guess it's kind of ironic we've been talking about technology the whole time, but what about a movie and or documentary that you love? Movie and or documentary. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I just, I recently watched, oh God, what's it called? I think it's called Jim and it's about James Foley, the journalist um, who was captured in Syria. Uh, my friend actually did that. It's by, it's an HBO documentary. His family does uh, a lot of the, really polished documentaries for HBO. And I personally just found it interesting because, you know, he was a really hardcore combat journalist um, who got captured and unfortunately did not make it out. But I've been to some sketchy places and in some sketchy situations because of my job as a journalist. And I think it helped me realize why I do that and how it kind of becomes its own sort of drug and how, if you keep chasing that high, may not always end well. It's a nice um, check, but it's, it's really well-made and 
shout out to my friend uh george who worked on it so beautiful i haven't had that one mentioned so thank you and it's interesting a lot of the the uniform professions have as i mentioned have childhood trauma and i think there's several reasons why they find this profession one of course is to end the cycle to become the protector um but another one and i had this in in some of the guys i had on that have you know real struggles including alcoholism it was to fill that void it was that distraction it was that you know that thing so they didn't have to think about the thing beneath the thing as, as they say um and what you normally saw was more often than not about 10 years the newness the 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 excitement wore off and then the other thing surface. So it's interesting that you had a kind of parallel thing in journalism too. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well then the, the uh, next question, is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? You've, I, you've had on Jason. Yeah. Uh, yes. Okay. I figured um, I would say, my friend, Mike Roussel, who spoke at Sandlot Jacks. He's a great nutrition resource. Um, very practical. You could have um, Trevor, who's a nutritionist in my um, book, come on. And that will be a question. That will be a conversation that has nothing to do with nutrition and everything to do with nutrition. Perfect. <laughs> it's a little bit, it's a, he's definitely heady and you kind of are like having to rewind a few times, but there's a lot of uh, profound stuff. Um, once you get it, I've, I've found with him, um, I would go with those two because I feel like nutrition is so important for the people you're speaking to. I remember I was teaching a, uh, PhD class for this public policy, um, program at UNLV. And there's a guy in there. Um, this is, it's a PhD program for people who are current professionals. So they're working in the field and they're from all over. They're like in government, they're in corporations, they're in, they're just, everywhere. And we had a guy who was a, uh, Clark County firefighter and he was doing his whole thesis on, uh, obesity in fire departments and how it's, I mean, I don't know what, if he was just looking at data for Clark County or what, but it was like much higher than the national average. And that shocked me. And, um, you know, it all really starts with what you eat. Like you can, you can train a ton and that'll get you, that'll get you places. You know, some people say exercise doesn't matter for weight loss. I disagree with that, but it really, you're going to move the dial way more with food and finding easy ways to eat better, I think is important. And I'm not one of those people that says, oh, don't do X or Y diet. I think you can learn from everything you do and take little pieces of it and build something that works for you. And so having more resources that give you the pieces to to build from, I think would be good. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I'd love to get both of them on if we can make that work because I, I agree with you completely. And sadly, if unaddressed, they become one of the horrendous statistics of you know firefighter deaths that we have. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, heart attacks and you know, not to mention like strokes on the job, that kind of thing is just crazy. Absolutely. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you, what do you do to decompress? Um, I would probably say working out. I live, um, I live on the edge of the desert in Las Vegas and we've got a really cool trail network, like just right outside my door, basically. So I'll spend a lot of time out there running, um, or rucking. I just find it very head clearing. There's something about the desert. that's like very, I don't know, soul filling. It's like, 
everything is dead and raw and just like, you know, harsh. And there's something about that. That's like, I don't know, I enjoy. So. Brilliant. All right. Well then for people listening, um, obviously you talked about getting the book on Amazon, where else online are the best places to find and learn more about you or reach out to you? Yeah, I am. I'm on Instagram at Michael underscore Easter. Um, you can follow along with whatever random stuff I put up there. And then my website is eastermichael.com. Brilliant. Yeah, well, speaking of random stuff, your last post was uh, gunman in Iraq. So that was quite interesting. <laughs> yeah, nice little standoff outside the hotel room. So <laughs> <laughs> entertainment for a few hours out there. Well, Michael, I just want to say thank you again. I know that you were just over there now that you know we can talk about it. Um, you just got back recently. It was uh, a shame I didn't get to meet you face to face in Sandlot, but as you know, there was so much going on. Um, yeah, you know, I was getting pulled in a thousand directions, which is amazing. Um, but again, I just want to thank you for for being so generous with your time. Your book was amazing. I recommend everyone read it. Um, I think it's so pertinent today. Um, and uh, yeah, thank you for coming on the Behind the Show podcast. Yeah, I'm glad we can make this happen. Next um, next year at Jacksonville, we will make sure to meet up in person. Thank you.